Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, fellow travelers, I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and I write the Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. And I'm Guy Winch. I wrote Emotional First Aid, and I write the Dear Guy column for TED. And this is Dear Therapist's. This week, a woman deals with the fallout after her mother blames her for her father's suicide. She said, you know why he killed himself? So she made it sound like she knew the reason. Like he left it in the suicide note. Basically, I don't believe her anymore. I feel like she's lying. Listen in and maybe learn something about yourself in the process. Dear Therapists is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, mental health professional, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. By submitting a letter, you are agreeing to let iHeartMedia use it, in part or in full, and we may edit it for length and or clarity. Hi, Guy. Hi, Lori. So this week's letter just slayed me. It's so painful. I'm going to read it to you. Here's how it goes. I'm ready. Dear therapists, my parents and I immigrated to the U.S. when I was six. I am now 48. My parents never learned English and relied heavily on me, especially since I was an only child. So I focused on them, drove them around, doctors, dentists, financial advisors, shopping, went through their mail, etc., When I got married, my parents lived with us since I was taught that this was Chinese tradition. Because I have children now, one with a disability, my priorities started to shift. I didn't do things for them immediately like I used to, even though it would get done, but not in the urgent manner they were accustomed to. I think my parents may have felt neglected and lost because of this. In 2017, my father took his own life for reasons I'm not sure about. My aunts and cousins were there for us during this hard time. I took my mom to China to visit her sisters that same year, thinking the trip would help her in her healing. Everything seemed fine for a while. I would take a day off work each month to dedicate to her for shopping, eating out, or visiting with family, in addition to going anywhere as needed during the week. One day in January 2019, as I was driving her to go shopping, she said, you know why your dad killed himself? And before I had a chance to say anything, she said, because of you. You never read our mail, and he was so concerned. I'm sure she said more, but I don't remember the rest. 
I confronted her two weeks later because if this was true, why didn't she blame me earlier? I've been broken since this. I can't even look at her now, even though she lives with me, but I feel imprisoned because she has nowhere else to go. I barely talk to her, maybe two sentences a week. I don't even go to her doctor appointments with her to translate. I leave it to the clinic to use the translation line, but I do drive her in complete silence. She did approach me early this year. She asked me, now that everything is out, can we go back to how our relationship was before? I'm disgusted and insulted that she can even ask me such a thing. Can you offer me some advice as to how I can move on? I carry a lot of hurt and I don't think she cares because if she did, she would never have said something so hurtful to me. Thank you, Molly. Okay, so I can see why that letter slayed you. This is one of those where everyone is hurting and everyone is hurting alone. And that's in part why this is so difficult. What happens often with immigrant families when they come with a young child is that that young child becomes very parentified because they're the ones that have to translate and mediate between their parents and the world at a very young age. So then their parents become very dependent on the six, seven, eight-year-old child, etc. And that, of course, creates a whole dynamic unto itself that can be very problematic. So there is so much here. You're right. There's that whole experience layered on top of something that often happens around suicide, which is all of these questions about what happened and why and what could have been done. Had I known, would I have done something differently? But to say to somebody, especially the daughter, this is your fault, it's so incredibly toxic. Because guilt is such a natural phenomenon around suicide. People feel like, oh, what if I had said something? Maybe when they said that thing, that was a hint of it. People go through that in their heads and search, often without reason, because often the suicide is about that person, not about the failure of anyone around them. So, yeah, so to go through that questioning and then to get that from her mother is so painful but she still has to be the caretaker for her mom despite this. So that's why this seems like such a torturous situation. I feel like this is going to be a difficult conversation, but I also hope that we can help her. So let's bring her in. You're listening to Dear Therapists from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dear Therapist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Dear Therapist. 
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. I'm Lori Gottlieb. And I'm Guy Winch. And this is Dear Therapists. So hi, Molly. Hi, thank you for accepting my letter and talking to me today. Of course. You're very welcome and thank you for coming on the show. So your letter was really painful to read, to be honest with you. And so first, our condolences about your dad and our condolences about the situation because it's really such a painful situation. Thank you. And I guess we wanted to start by getting a little background, if that's okay. You came with your parents, you were six, they didn't speak the language, you probably learned it very quickly at that age. Could you tell us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up? Um, sure. All my cousins, my aunts and my grandmother, we all came here together and we learned the language, the little ones and the older ones never really learned. And they um, depended upon the younger ones to translate. Molly, can you tell us why your family decided to come here? Um, my uncle moved here. And he thought it was a good area where we can grow and have freedom and have choices and not be restricted by the government. And, you know, it's everything he said. Majority of us have great careers, and that's mainly the reason. When you were young, all the translating fell to you. Whereas with your cousins, there was more than one kid, so they could probably divvy it up a little bit. But when you're translating all the time, you're exposed as a young kid to a lot of things that parents wouldn't ordinarily expose their young child to because they don't want them to know necessarily what's the balance in the bank. In other words, you have to carry this responsibility of not just the translation, but of the knowing at an age where you're really too young to have to deal with that. Right. And even when my parents, their house was broken into, instead of calling 911, they called me. So this is basically my life, and I didn't know any different. And I was okay with it until I got older, and I have children, and my priority shifted. And that's where I feel that maybe they never accepted that, because I always put them first. What they want, I did it immediately. So I just did as I was told. And that's also the expectations of our tradition, our culture. What was your world outside of your family? If you had any world outside of your family when you were growing up, did you have friends at school? Did you have people come over to the house? Did you go to their houses? Did you participate in extracurriculars at school? Um, I mainly hung out with my cousins. We were always together until maybe junior high school. I didn't participate in a lot of school activities because my parents never really encouraged me to do that. I play the piano. I think that's very, <laughs> that's a very Asian thing. <laughs> so I did the piano, but I had, um, wanted to do ballet because my friends were doing it. And my mom has a thing where she likes to, I think she likes to say statements just to get a reaction. But I've always been overweight and she would, instead of telling me no, 
she can or she does not sign up, she would just say, oh, you're too fat. You're going to fall and break the floor. It would just lead to a comment where it's like hurtful. And she would always say it in front of everybody. So how would you react when when she would say things like that? I mean, it sounds like maybe it became something that you got used to in a way. So it wasn't as surprising, even though it probably was always painful. It's, it is painful. I mean, you know, who wants to be reminded that you're overweight, especially as a child? And she would always say it in front of my family and to get them to laugh, which, I mean, I never laughed. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You said up until junior high, you mainly hung out with your cousins. Was there a point in junior high and high school when you started to make outside friendships? Yes, I did make some friendships, but they would say, oh, this person's no good, so you can't be friends with them. Or, you know, maybe you shouldn't hang out with this person. So I had a very small group, which is fine because I'm an introvert anyway, so I didn't like a big social group. So to me, that was somewhat normal. Um, I don't know if it is or not. (laughs) Well, it's restrictive for sure, right? I mean, it's quite restrictive because coincidentally, all these things involve you leaving the house and having your life away from them, whether it's dancing, whether it's socializing. Mm -hmm. You know, piano, you practice mostly at home. So somehow there was a way of keeping you tethered to the home. I could see that. Did you go away to college? And move out of the house? No, that's the other thing I was resentful for because I had wanted to um, see what was out there for me. But I didn't dare do that because they relied on me. Who else are they going to call? So I stayed at home. Resentments build, but again, that's part of my life. So I just let it go. If I didn't have this like rope against me, (laughs) on me, I wouldn't be with her. Was there a point in which you actually lived separately from your parents? For a very short time, I did. After I graduated, I went to Asia because I really wanted to travel some before I, you know, got serious and had responsibilities. Had had more responsibility. You had plenty of responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I went to Asia and I traveled for almost a year, but I came back because it was tax time and they wanted me to help them with their taxes. So I flew back because of that. But what was it like then, that year abroad, when you're away from them, when you're truly independent for the first time without all those responsibilities? What was that like for you? I described that as probably the happiest time of my life. I didn't have to um, Mm. hear about it, hear the complaints. Hear the constant, can you do this? Can you do this? Or you did this wrong, you know? That was just such a great time. (laughs) So stupid, that was such a great time. Tell us about the joy of your liberation. (laughs) Tell us what brought you so much joy. I think freedom, not the obligation. I don't have to be told what they wanted me to do, command what they wanted me. And not only command, but my mom would just, it was insults on top of commands, you know. So it was just nice to not have to hear that. It was just happiness. 
Did you meet friends that year yes. and start to have a social life? Right. I, I met a lot of people. It was great. It was really fun. That was the only period, though, in your life. So you came back. How did you go on with your life? I came back, got a job. I met my now husband. How did you meet your husband? I was working for the government. We didn't have any um, snacks or anything in the building. So we would have to go next door to this gas station. And he was working there. And that's how I met him. <laughs> and how did your parents react to the fact that you had a boyfriend and what was dating like under those circumstances where you're living at home and your parents are relying so heavily on you? Dating it was fine because I was out of school. So it wasn't as though I had to focus on my schoolwork or anything. But I think they would prefer that I would marry an Asian person. So that was probably mm -hmm. their dislike. How vocal was their disapproval? Ever since I was a child, they always said you should marry somebody Asian that's going to understand our tradition, our language, our culture, which I think is kind of common. And I understood that. But you bring me to Florida and there's not a lot of Chinese specifically. So it's not like I'm in New York or California. So I think that was unfair. How do you know that they had reservations about him. They repetitively said, if you dated an Asian person, this person would understand this is what you do with elderly. You respect them. So it was constantly, you should have married an Asian person so they would understand and we could communicate also better with them. Mm -hmm. So they don't speak much English at all, so they can't really have a conversation with exactly. him. Yeah. So you translate. Is that what happens when you're all together? I would translate, but honestly, they didn't talk that much to each other or still don't. So you're kind of in the middle mediating. Always, yeah. Again, it's not your parents and the authority, <laughs> but now it's your parents and your husband. Yep. The, again, you get stuck with that duty of your this essential component for yep. your parents' lives. Yep, that's my life. So when you get married, since you were living with your parents, was it now the four of you find a place and move in together? Or was there some time that you had just the two of you? So I moved in with my fiance at the time for less than a year. And then we bought a house. And then maybe two months later, they sold their house and they were anxious to move in. Did you and your husband talk about the fact that your parents were coming to live with you? And how did he feel about all of this? I told them at the beginning, I said, we're a package deal. And I said, you know, I understand it's not something you expect in the U.S., but I said that this is going to happen. And if you can't handle it, I understand. He was okay with it because it would be also like um, live-in babysitters. So the four of you living together, in what ways does your husband take care of you? He was comforting to me whenever I'm upset with them. He's my best friend too. So, But I also didn't want to bring too much to him, my problems of my parents, because that would make him upset. So I kind of had to just keep it to myself. I would speak to some friends, but really nobody understands. Nobody understands. That's a, it's a lonely place to be when you're going through something so intense your entire yeah. life and there's no one around who truly gets yeah. it. 
It is. What I'm hearing in all of this is your isolation. That you came here as a child. You took care of your parents. You had to be what we call a parentified child, which means you took on a lot of responsibilities that normally would be in the adult sphere as a child. And then you grow up, you experience some period of time where you are abroad and you get to kind of say, oh, this is who I am. But then you're brought back into this, right? So you got out of the isolation a little bit. You started to make friends. You started to make connections. You started to make a connection to yourself. And then it was about, oh, I'm going to disappear again in the service of all of my other responsibilities. And then you meet this guy. And you're kind of isolated again, even though he loves you and he's very supportive because there's this whole family dynamic where if you talk to him too much about your frustration with your parents and he's living in the house with your parents, that might cause some problems. And I imagine it's isolating too because you probably don't have a lot of privacy in terms of just being married and being a parent without your parents interfering in some way. So when your father was alive, what was their relationship like with your children? And did they did they respect you as the mother of your children? Meaning without interfering? Well, things got worse after I had kids because they took on the parent role because they were with them all day. I think they really forget that they were the caretakers and not the parent. Like nighttime, you're supposed to teach them to soothe themselves to sleep. So I would wait outside their door. And this is Western style. So Western style doesn't connect with their Eastern style. So when my son was crying, I remember one time she came down the hallway, pushed me out of the way to get to his room and pick him up. At one point, she would tell me, just because you gave birth doesn't make you a mother. So that was very hurtful to wow. me. Mm. So, you know, these, uh, these, these comments are so devastatingly cruel. Yeah, it was, just, it was very hurtful. Yeah. Sometimes when she made these comments and my dad would hear them, he was the one that would apologize to me. He's like, you know, mm-hmm. your mom didn't really mean that. She's just saying that. So, you know, don't don't be mad because he was always the one that apologized for her. Did she make comments like that to your dad as well? I'm sure. I'm very sure she did. Because um, they're always bickering. And I would always hear my dad say, the first one says it wins, in, but in Cantonese. So I'm thinking she probably said something outrageous to him. And that's mm. that's probably why he made that comment. You know, Molly, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that you, you grew up with a mom who had really cruel mm. comments, and a lot of them, and that I'm thinking of you growing up and thinking, but this is just how it is. This is my life. This is my responsibility. This is just how it is, without feeling any avenue in which you get to rebel find comfort for it, get someone to tell you, no, that's not okay, that's not reasonable. You were so alone in Mm -hmm. this. 
And you probably were wondering for many years, is she cruel or am I just sensitive or like what's going on over there? And I think you're still living that life. Other than that one year in Asia, you've been shackled all the time by expectation, by tradition, by culture, by obligation, whatever it is. And when you're shackled, you can say, wait, this is not okay, because you just don't feel like you have an option. Even today, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of opportunity for you to yeah. really express, get support, get validation. I did um, talk to my two cousins, and I was hoping that they would understand. And um, it really hurt me that they took her side, and all they said to me was, just just let it go, just forget about it. She's old, she has diabetes, I don't know what that has to do with it, but she's old, just let it go. You're, you're overthinking it, basically, so... <laughs> They're referring to what? Uh, to, to the comment, to the, the comment that she made about your the cause of your dad's right, suicide. Right. That's what they said. Just yeah, let just that let go. it go. It's fine. Just that she's just old. She doesn't even know what she's saying. She does know what she's saying because she's been saying yes. it your whole life. Yes. This might have been sort of those comments on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't out of character. No, it's not. It wasn't an isolated comment where you can say, well, maybe she's getting old and there's something going on right. neurologically with mm -hmm. her. This was pretty consistent mm -hmm. with the way that she's spoken to you your whole life. And what makes this even more painful is that it was your father who would be the voice of reason in this, who could see you. He was the one who said, I'm sorry she said that, even if he didn't stand up to mm -hmm. her. He acknowledged that it was not okay what she said. And now this comment is about your father. Mm -hmm. So not only is he not here as the one person who acknowledged that what she was saying was not okay, but he's not here and the comment is about your ally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he, you know what, the thing is, she never even apologized or anything, because she doesn't apologize, that's just her thing. And he's not here to apologize for her anymore, so I had to actually confront her. So when she said it, I was driving, and she just made this offhand comment when I was driving her to go shopping. It's like, who says that? So what happened right after she said that? It sounds like you didn't react to it in the moment, it was probably quite shocking yeah. but between the time of the comment and two weeks later when you confronted her the two of you pretended it didn't happen well, that's very common with her she'll say something very shocking and it acts as though nothing ever happened so i think i was still processing it because it's such a shocking statement that anybody can make especially to their child i can't even imagine myself making those comments to my child did you tell your husband i told my husband i and he, he, he was just, he apologized. He's like, no, you didn't do anything like that. So he was very upset. But I told her not to say anything because I really can't handle, like, my feud with her. And then him having a feud with her. So I said, please just don't talk to her because I can't handle more conflict. It's just too much. There's a certain expectation that you have, Molly, that you're role is always to mediate, your role is always to make mm. sure everything's okay. And unfortunately, in this case, and maybe in others, what it did is it actually blocked your husband from being able to be 
as supportive as he wanted to be and as you needed him to be. Because if he had a feud with her over this as well, he would have been aligned mm -hmm. with you. And I think because you're so used to feeling the obligation and responsibility to take care of the people around you, you miss mm -hmm. out on his being at your side, supporting you, giving the same message and really feeling that you're not alone in this. I guess I'm just afraid of a blow up. Because he would be in her face and she wouldn't even know what she, he's talking about. Maybe I just feel bad for her because I've always been her protector. You know, so that's just my role. So I, it's hard for me to let that go, especially as she's getting older. There's nobody else speaking up for her, so I feel bad. <laughs> you want to be her protector, but when someone offers to protect you, you decline. So when your husband could be there to protect you, you're worried that then you will be protecting your mother. Ew, it's messed up. <laughs> well, I think what it is, is it's the parentified child again, is the child who feels that intense responsibility that I have to protect my parents from all of the things in this new land where they don't understand anything. I have to help them acclimate. I have to protect them from everything. And then you become an adult and you don't realize that you might need protecting too. And so I wonder, what are you actually protecting her from? From being heard. Because she lives in this bubble where everybody speaks for her, drives her places, you know, and does everything for her and um, keep her in this bubble. And I guess that's just my role is to continue this keeping her in this bubble because I'm not really sure how to do anything else other than that. But the unfortunate part of that is that you didn't have that as a kid. You had to squelch your own feelings because there was no outlet for them. There's no point in recognizing how upset you are, how hurt you are, how limited you feel, because there's nothing you can do about it. So you just are not used to asking yourself, but what about my feelings? Not just what about hers, what about mine? And I think that still carries over, that her needs loom so large in front of you and your needs are going to have to wait. And they've been waiting for a long time now. And when I think about your feelings that have been squelched, your father died. And he died in a really, really painful way. Suicide is one of these things where families often have so many questions. What happened? What was really going on? Could we have seen signs of this? Was that a cry for help? That's what happens in families with suicide so often. And then on top of that, the person isn't there anymore. So you've lost the person that you love. And I wonder how you have, before this comment, how you grieved your father's death. I didn't know that it was going to happen because he's just always so quiet. You just never know what's going on with him. All he does was eat, read his newspaper, watch TV, and that's pretty much his basic life. And my mom always did the talking, so you always know about her, but you never really know about him unless you ask him. And sometimes when I asked him, she would speak for him, and I would have to remind her, like, I'm not asking you, I'm asking him. I guess maybe I don't know 
why he did that. Molly, I'm not asking why he did it, although I'm pretty sure it's not the answer your mother gave you. But what I'm asking is how you grieved the loss of your dad. Oh, how I grieved? I mean, I just cried for a long time. Mostly my car when I was driving to work. <laughs> so By yourself? Did your husband ever hold you or see you cry? Maybe I was shy about my feelings and crying in front of him because I didn't want him to make him feel bad. Yeah, that's not shy, Molly. That's that I need to make sure everyone else's feelings are okay. Mine don't matter. And I'm the protector for everyone, but no one's the protector for me. When you grow up and you can't express your feelings, and if you do, you don't get validation, you get criticism for it. You learn pretty quickly not to express your feelings, and you can carry that into adulthood so that even though there is now someone in your life who wants to be there for you, who wants to protect you, who wants to help soothe your feelings, you're not fully letting him. Isn't it okay just to cry privately or feel sad privately? There's a difference between having some private moments to mourn and feeling like there's no one who can really understand you or support you, and that's why you're crying alone in your car. Mm -hmm. I think what's going on is you felt like your mourning would be a burden on your husband. So it wasn't just, I'm choosing to, to grieve in the car, which, of course, people do. It was, I'm grieving in the car because if I do it anywhere else... I will upset other people. I will be a burden to them. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I I didn't want him to feel like he had to cheer me up or something. So why? But this is but this is exactly this is what it's correct. What Laurie's saying that is this feeling of asking anyone to have a response to your feelings is burdening them. I think in some ways, this is how you felt as a child that the burden was on you to make sure your parents were happy. And you didn't like that for the reasons that make sense, right? You were a kid, it wasn't your job. And as an adult, you don't want to put your husband in that situation because your idea of giving support is wrapped up in this experience as a child. And so now when you think about your husband having that responsibility for you, you have negative associations with it as opposed to the positive associations of what it means to be close to somebody, what it means to sit with them in their pain, what it means to see them in their loss, in their grief. That's intimacy. Growing up, that wasn't intimacy. It was responsibility and burden. And you're confusing that with what it would be if your husband gave that to you. If he gave that to you, it wouldn't be responsibility and burden. It would be love. I guess I didn't want to pull him into my black hole. (laughs) Usually a spouse who loves you wants to be able to be there for you, maybe not fall into a black hole, but to be able to pull you out of one. Yeah. I I just, I guess my thought is like, well, he didn't ask for this, so I don't want to make his day bad or something. I don't know. It was just... he lost a parent and he was really upset and he wanted your support, would you in any way feel like, oh, he's making my day difficult now? Like, would that even cross your mind? <laughs> no, I, no, I'm, that's right. right. Because you love him. 
I guess maybe if she didn't live here, maybe I would turn to him a little more. But I feel like if she's here, I have to be stronger. Why? <sighs> that's the most important reason, rather, to turn to him because she's there and that's why you need his support? I think I just feel sorry for her. She is like nobody. It's one of the things you feel is sorry. Yeah. I think you have a lot of anger and you have a lot of guilt. Mm -hmm. And that's a perfect storm of things to come together to make you feel like, I don't know what I'm going to do with these things. They're so big. And I think that's the theme of what's going on with a lot of people in your family, this feeling of being trapped. So your parents brought you here, but now they're trapped because without you, they can't manage. Mm -hmm. And you feel trapped because now you're the only mm -hmm. one who can help them manage. And so now you feel trapped and your husband might feel a little bit trapped because you're the package deal. He signed up for it and all of that, but you know, he wants to help you. He sees what goes on. He sees that you get upset sometimes, but he's not free to be there for you, to support you in the way that he would like to. So there's this a lot of feeling of helplessness, of feeling trapped, of like this, this is a terrible situation and there's nothing that can be done to change any of it. This pretty much explains it. I'm wondering about where you are with your children. What's the day-to-day -day like with that? And uh, you smiled the minute I said your children. So tell me about your children. Tell me about your relationships with them. My son just learned to drive. He's 16. He's, he's really a good kid. My daughter, she has a disability. She goes to a charter school. She's doing well, too. And uh, I think sometimes it's hard because they see the tension between me and my mom. What was the kids' reactions to their grandfather's death? Did they know that it was a suicide? Yeah. And they must have been very close with him because yeah. your mom and your father were the caretakers right. for your kids when they're growing up. My daughter, I think because of her disability, she doesn't understand. My son took it really hard. He was very close mm -hmm. to my dad. But uh, I guess he just kind of pushes it aside. I told him, I said, you know, he just wasn't happy. He took his life. And we don't know what's the reason. We may never know. But it's not anybody's fault. So, and I told him, you know, if he has any questions, he can always ask me. But I don't, I don't know what to tell him. I don't know myself. That's beautiful how you talk to him about it. It was so honest and so authentic. And unlike your mother's comment, so true. We don't know. He was struggling. We don't know why. And this is so hard. Yeah. And for a family that doesn't talk, to give him permission to ask yeah. about it and say, if things come up, you can ask, is such an important addition that you put in there. <laughs> well, what I did learn is that I don't want to be like her. So I try to be the opposite. You're trying to give your kids a lot of what you needed as a child. Probably, yeah. How, how old is your mom? Um, 77. Are there any options for her to live anywhere else? I did bring that up. Not whether she would agree right. to it, but what are the theoretically the options? I told her the best option is to live with my aunt, who's also a widow. And they call each other like 10 times a day. And I said, it's perfect. 
you guys both, you know, <laughs> can gossip and talk and, you know, do whatever you guys do instead in person. And I would just pay her rent. But she doesn't want to do that because she is very comfortable and set in her way. Does your aunt live by herself? She does. She lives by herself. So that's very interesting because what you've said is that you grew up hearing that dutiful children have their parents live with them throughout the lifespan. And yet your cousins Mm -hmm. said, hey, mom, here's a great apartment for you. And your aunt seems to be quite content living the way she does. I guess the way you're formulating this in your head is that, well, that wouldn't happen because my mom wouldn't agree to go live with my aunt. However, right now what's happening is that you are agreeing for your mom to live with you. It's your home. I'm not sure you see that this is actually not her call to make necessarily, but yours. Yeah. Kick her out. Look, you say that very harshly. (laughs) I would maybe think more of ease her out. I'm not even saying that's the thing, but I'm just pointing out that you're the one who has the control or the power of that decision. And there are options in between that. Like, if you're going to live here, we need to make this a harmonious place. Right. There are a lot of options, whereas you're presenting this as this is the situation, it's immutable, and I just have to suck it up and find a way to deal with it. I want to ask you one more thing about what's happened since your mom made that comment. What did she say to you in that conversation? So she made it sound like she knew the reason. Like he left it in a suicide note. There was a suicide note? There was a suicide note. Which you didn't see, only she did. Yes. And I was talking to my therapist about that note and having it translated. And she asked me if I really want to do that. Do you? Kind of. I guess I'm scared to. I will like waver, you know, should I, should I not? If I know and if it's true, can I, you know, can I deal with that? And if it's not? I guess if it's not, it's, it's, it's fine. But if it is, because why did she just suddenly say that too? But is there a value add in translating the note? There's a downside potentially if that's what's in there. But is there a upside? Maybe that you can say, don't blame yourselves. He loved us and it's not your fault. So. You know, you said that your dad was somebody who you didn't know a lot about because your mother spoke for him. Whenever you tried to ask how he was doing, she would answer for him. He was very quiet. Can you imagine a scenario in which your father suffered from depression? Yeah. He was just a quiet person. So I don't know if... Like, depression meant quiet, or quiet meant depression? I have a question about what happened right after his death, because she brought this up about a year or two later. Mm -hmm. When somebody kills themselves, often people start to wonder. They talk, why why did this happen? What was the conversation in your family? 
did you and your mother or your cousins or your aunts or anybody have a conversation around just why you thought this had happened? Did you ever say to your mom at that time, what did he say in the note? Did you ever ask? She told me it wasn't my business. She really didn't say anything like why. She would just tell my aunts like, oh, I think he wasn't feeling good. But there was a note and she didn't share it with your aunts. She didn't no. share it with your cousin. She didn't share it with anybody. Nobody. What strikes me about her comment is that I think it's really her very mixed up and indirect way of telling you that she is unhappy with the care that you're giving her. The amount of attention that you're paying to her. Yeah. And so t she said something quite provocative. Um, your father wasn't getting this from you and he killed himself. I think she was really speaking for herself, which was, I'm not getting this and I am furious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I can see that. I do so much for her. She doesn't drive, so I drive her everywhere. I make her doctor's appointments. I do, you know, prescription. I buy stuff for her. I take her out to eat, take her to my aunt's house. Everything you can think of, I do. I even did it after my father passed away because he was driver and everything. So I picked up the slack where he left off. So how I'm not doing things for her... I mean, that's a private butler. <laughs> Here's something that happens when reality is distorted from a very young age. So your mother says, you can't do ballet because you're overweight, nothing's good enough. Even if you're doing something, you did it wrong. And so reality gets distorted. And you're saying, look at all these things I did for her. How could she possibly think that? Yeah. And you're trying to reconcile reality, which is you do a tremendous number of things for her with her way of going through life, which is nothing measures up. Right. She's disappointed in everyone and everything. Right. And so you're never going to win that case. You're right. You know, exhibit right. A, exhibit B, exhibit C, it doesn't matter. You will lose that case in the jury of your mother. You're absolutely right. One of the reasons you'll lose the case is because in your mother's head, your feelings and needs are not a mediating factor. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't, well, she's a child. She wants to do ballet, let her go have some fun. She's here on duty all mm -hmm. the time. It never factored in. Yeah. So that's why you can never win the case. There's no mediation there for your needs, your feelings, your side of things, only what she yeah. needs. You're right. And that's why I feel as though my the purpose of my life was to serve her. You know? In her eyes, yes, yeah. it was. And there's like nothing else. So when you confronted her, did you tell her how much that hurt you? No, I didn't tell her. I mean, Why not? Just because I think it's logical. You know. You think what's logical? Uh, if you accuse somebody of, you know, hurting your father, that it's logical that it's painful. That I shouldn't have to say that, right? Right, but you didn't say it because it never mattered to her whether it was hurtful to you yeah. or not. So earlier this year, I said to her, I said, why would you say something like that? 
And she gave me gibberish. She goes, I know you didn't do anything. It was all my fault. Can we just go back to the way it was? It was just so nonchalant, you know, like, let's just put it under the rug like it never happened. And I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. The all my fault. I I wonder if there's a part of her that feels like she's to blame. Yeah, I, I probably think it is. Because if I was my dad, I probably would have left her. She would accuse him of having an affair. My dad never left the house. He didn't speak English. He didn't leave the house. Having an affair, taking money from their account. That is not even believable at all. You said that your mother behaves like and probably believes that your purpose in life is to serve her. And I want to know whether you still believe that or whether you're willing to put that aside and that and redefine Mm. what your purpose is in a way that doesn't limit you to serving her. I think it's hard now to put that aside, especially since she's older. But this is what happens in your thinking, Molly. It goes to either I serve her completely or I'm abandoning her. Mm. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm saying that that purpose, that number one directive of must serve mom, is what she thinks your number one directive in life should be. And you live like that, in essence. And I'm asking if you're willing to adjust that, not abandon her, but adjust it so that it is not your sole or primary purpose in life, and maybe only a minor secondary one. I I would like to adjust that. I think the only way I can adjust it is if she leaves. Because when she's here, it's a constant reminder of all the hurt and anger and burden that she is on me. Maybe I can ask my cousin if she can move in with my aunt. And then he can ask my aunt about it. we do have some advice for you Mm. and it comes from the place in which we feel like you've been trapped really your whole life and it's time for you to escape the trap it's time for you to be free to Mm. truly parent the way you want attend to your needs the way you want and not to have to live with a parent breathing down your neck who's a cruel parent because you're no longer a child You feel really trapped because our duty is for her to live with us. But you also know how to go against that expectation because you ended up marrying someone who wasn't Chinese. So you've already done a bit of that. So what we want you to do this week is we want you to have a talk with your mom in which you let her know that, Mom, I don't think this is working well at all. You're living here. It's tense. Our relationship has gone downhill. We're barely speaking. And I don't think it's good for either of us, and it's not good for our relationship. And so I want you to go and live with that aunt. And I will continue doing things for you. I'll take care of you in most of the ways that I already do. I'm not abandoning you. But I want you to live there. And we want you to also say to her, and mom, 
to be clear, if that doesn't work out, we'll find another arrangement. I think that's the best option for you. But if that doesn't work out, we'll find another option. It might not be as good. Just so that she's not too motivated to go and sabotage that option. And once she is moved, then you will continue to do for her what you can do for her. But if she's cruel to you at that point, then you get to say to her, Mom, I am doing these things for you because I know you need me to do these things for you. But if you keep being cruel to me, I will not be that motivated to do them. You have to be kinder to me. We want you to set limits without going forward with the cruelty that you don't have to put up with it. You don't have to absorb it. You don't have to hear those horrible things that you can't then unhear. I feel like she would refuse. Um, okay, I'm glad you brought that up because it's not her call, Molly. And that has been part of your problem. Your problem is you are convinced that the cage you see around you is real. And it's not. Because it is your call. Whether she lives with you, it is your home. Oof. Would I call the cops if she refuses to move? I don't think we're there yet. I think that she is going to unleash her cruelty on you if she is displeased with this, and she will be displeased with this. Highly. So you want to prepare for that. If she's already at a 10, it's going to go to 100 very quickly. Or she will do the opposite, and she will do everything to be incredibly kind to you and say, look, no, we get along well. Look, this works out great. And, and, and she'll try to get in your good graces. Neither of those things changes the fact that you deserve to live your life. And I want to emphasize again, you are not abandoning her. You're still going to be doing all the things that you do for her. You know what you want, but you're so afraid to give yourself yeah. something in life. It's true. It's all about everybody else. Mm. And this is, this is not abandoning your mother. This is where you have mm. to really reframe this and change your mindset that has been so indoctrinated mm. in you from a very early age that your purpose in life is to serve your parents. You're still going to be doing a tremendous amount right. for your mom. And feeling resentful yeah. about it. Probably. Yes. <laughs> Even once she's yeah. moved out. Yes. All you're saying is this arrangement is not working. Okay. The thing that I think is hard for you to wrap your mind and heart around is this idea that you're not just abandoning your mom, but you're abandoning your culture. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to lose sight of the cultural piece, which is, yes, there is a very strong mandate to take care of your parents. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that when you are subjected to such extreme cruelty on a regular basis, that you can't help to define for yourself what taking care of your mom means. So you're still protecting that cultural heritage. We do want you to have your husband on standby oh. for before and after that conversation, because you will need someone who you can vent to or cry to or will talk you down about the guilt and say, no, 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 you've been an amazing daughter. You deserve to have a life. We deserve to have a life. 
But you will need support leading up to it and certainly right after. Okay. What is the worst case scenario of having that conversation with your mother? Mm-hmm. She's probably telling me I'm like a horrible daughter. I'm useless. Yeah, she will. Yep, she'll tell you all that. And um, I don't even know why I ever gave birth to you. You're just horrible. Molly, you know, it is very difficult to set limits with somebody who's treating you very poorly when they don't think they're treating you poorly because they look at you like, what are you talking about? You're being the terrible person now. It's not exactly gaslighting because that's her perception, but it is very bizarre world in the sense of, no, you are the one that's put up with her cruelty. Making it stop is not cruel. Making somebody who treats you very poorly stop doing it is not a cruelty on your part. It's essential. I know. I kind of knew it. it. It's been there. I know she has to leave. I just always procrastinated. And now you have a week. Part two of the advice is we want to talk about the grieving that you're doing. And the grieving that maybe still needs to be done for the loss of your father. And you were talking about how you go in the car and you cry in the car and you don't really share your loss with him. So we want you to share your grief and loss with him, even a little bit. So that instead of pushing away the very thing you wanted so badly as a child, you have it right here and we want you to taste it a little bit. And so we want you to say to him, I still think about my dad a lot. I'm so sad about my dad. I miss my dad. Here's what's going on. And have him be there. That's part of the grieving. And the other part of the grieving is we feel like you need the truth about what happened with your father in as much as you can get it. And we feel like that note is very important. So reading that note will be very painful, but it won't be as painful as not knowing the truth. I think he left two notes because one, she says she found in the medicine bottle. And then when I went to go pick up because he he had committed suicide in his car. And there was another note when I went to go pick up the stuff from the sheriff's office. I have another one. I don't know if it's duplicated. But you haven't had the one you have translated. Correct. So what we'd like you to do this week is have the conversation with your mother. Let us know how that felt. Not just what happened, but how it felt for you. And then what arrangements have been made. And we'd like you to share a little bit of your grief with your husband so that you're not hiding that piece of you from him. And we would like you to see if you can investigate options for getting the letter translated by somebody who is not involved with your family so that you could tell us what it was like for you to really find out directly what your father left behind. Okay. And if you do get it translated, Molly, we would like you to read the translation with your husband at your side. You will need that support. Okay. I'm afraid what is in there, but okay. So the thing is, you talk about being afraid of what's in there. But I think what's even scarier is that if you don't find out what's in there, you will live with the pain 
of wondering. Mm-hmm. You're right. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much. Molly has been in prison her entire life, in servitude, really, to her mom, to her dad, in that role that she had to play. She then became an adult, moved out, moved in with her husband, and moved the prison in with her. She doesn't realize that she is free. That happens so often where people are imprisoned as children, and then they grow up, and they don't realize that they are their own jailers now. And we kept saying to her, it's your call whether she lives with you. And I think that's going to be a big shift for her. And the other part of it is that I really want her to do some grieving because her dad was the parent who saw her, who noticed that the mother was talking to her in a way that was abusive. And I think she lost her ally when he died and in such a tragic way. So I really hope that she can talk to her husband about her grief, and I hope that she can have the courage to translate that letter so that she has the truth once and for all. You're listening to Dear Therapist from iHeartRadio. We'll be back after a quick break. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Guy, we heard back from Molly. And to be honest, this is one where I think maybe people don't realize that as therapists, we're really rooting for people. And with a delicate situation like this, sometimes we can be a little bit apprehensive about what might happen. And this is one of those situations where I really want to hear what happened. And I'm also a little bit nervous, quite frankly, to hear what happened. Yeah, anything we would have suggested that we think would have been useful would have been painful and difficult to do. I'm really hoping it went well because it's going to be painful one way or the other. All right, well, let's listen to it. Hi, Lori and Guy. I just wanted to give you an update on my homework. My friend translated the suicide note. She told me that his mental and physical health was not improving. So he decided to take it upon himself to make this decision to take his life. And he didn't want to be a burden to his family. 
Number two is leaning on my husband. I have been doing that a lot more often now, so that's been going well. Number three is getting my mom out. I have had some guilt in doing that, but I know that just to have her leave is the best thing. I went to her on Sunday morning and I asked, I told her that I was really unhappy. I couldn't stand the sight of her and I really hated living with her. I was very upset and I told her that she really should live with my aunt, but she refuses to live with my aunt for whatever reason. So it seems like we're going to have to find some money and find her some housing. And don't worry, it will be done soon because I need her out for my own well-being. So that will be done within a couple of weeks. I'm looking into some finances. And once she has that money, she is to leave. I want to thank you guys um, for helping me, giving me the push, giving me all that advice and spending that time with me. Thank you so much. So, wow. This must have been an unimaginably hard week for Molly. She got the letter translated, which is something that I think had been this big question mark weighing over her. She shared some of her inner life with her husband, which I'm really glad she was able to do. And she took action with her mother. Now, the thing is that I noticed in her response that she had like one sentence about, yeah, I got the letter translated and here's what it said. And yeah, I talked to my husband and here's what happened. There was no emotion in that at all. And I thought that was really notable. And then we didn't suggest that she say to her mother, you know, I can't stand to look at you, that we, we didn't want it to be positioned in that way. But I think what happened was she must have had a reaction to seeing that the letter really did vindicate her and then feeling even more anger at her mother for putting her through that psychological torture of this was your fault, your father killed himself because of you, which was blatantly untrue. And I'll bet she was so angry, relieved, first of all, that was not true, but then really grasping with the reality of my mother tortured me psychologically in that way with this lie, I think made it hard for her to contain that anger when she asked her mother to move out. I agree with you. And I think the other thing that made it hard for her to contain her anger is that she had to stuff down so much resentment, so much anger over the years. And I think that at the point where she's allowing herself to get in touch with it because she's allowing herself to act on it, and then it bursts out in a volcanic kind of stream. Right. And I think we should go back to that cultural piece, which is that maybe in another culture, the kinds of comments that her mother made would be maybe harsh but not abusive. And so I think we have to be sensitive to the culture in which the mother grew up because it might be that from the mother's point of view, she was being helpful to her daughter. She was saying, look, these are the things you can improve on. We don't know. But we do know that Molly from a young age grew up here and really did not like the 
the criticisms, did not like the responsibility, and did not feel like she ever got to have a life of her own. I do think she was caught between two worlds her entire life. The obligation from the cultural Chinese perspective of you must take care of your parents, especially when they sacrificed so much and they don't speak the language and they're dependent on you. There was such a strong demand for that and such a strong expectation. She internalized it completely. And I think that this made her take the step towards, yes, I might be bicultural, but my standards are these standards. The other thing, too, is that she's seeing as she moves closer to her husband what reciprocity in a relationship looks like, what empathy looks like. One of the things we were talking with her about was about grieving her father's death. And part of that was getting the truth, and part of that was to be able to have the space without her mother's voice right. in her head and without the guilt and without the question about her responsibility in it. And now that she's able to talk about that more with her husband and to sit with that with herself, I think she's going to have a lot of room to do that. It's going to be really hard and it's really painful, but far less painful than not being able to feel those feelings and then also to feel like maybe she had a role in this. And one last thing I'll say. I did not expect that she would pull all of this off so quickly. The amount of emotional strength it required for her to do the things that she's been fighting against all her life, to finally do these things, I think it was remarkable what she pulled off. I'm just blown away. When we were listening to her voicemail, you and I were looking at each other in just awe mm -hmm. that she was able to accomplish so much in a week. And I think it's been long overdue and she was ready to do something. But sometimes people are ready to do something and then when it comes to actually executing it, they get cold feet. And she didn't. I think this is the beginning of a new chapter in her life that is going to feel very different and very positive for her. It's a new chapter, but it might even feel like a new life entirely. And to the extent that it does, I hope it feels like a great one. Hey, fellow travelers. If you've used any of our advice from the podcast in your own life, send us a quick voice memo to Laurie and Guy at iheartmedia.com and tell us about it. We may include it in a future show. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review it. You can follow us both online. I'm at lauriegottlieb.com and you can follow me on Twitter at lauriegottlieb1 or on Instagram at lauriegottlieb underscore author. And I'm at guywinch.com. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram at guywinch. If you have a dilemma you'd like to discuss with us, big or small, email us at laurieandguy at iheartmedia.com. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. We're produced and edited by Mike Johns. Special thanks to Samuel Benefield and to our podcast fairy godmother, Katie Couric. And next week, a man feels guilty that he isn't connecting enough with his mother in another country during COVID. Oh, and he's not just any fellow traveler. He's a special guest that you may already know. We expect our parents, or at least for some parts of our lifestyle, they're our superheroes. And then often the roles reverse as we get older. And one of the things that I've noticed in that role reversal is there can be a lot of feelings of guilt. Dear Therapist is a production of iHeartRadio. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you 
and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now.